Good day and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. We continue with Season 9 where we're looking at films that have won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And for today's one, I bring you a unique yet contemporary one, and that is Guillermo del Toro's beautiful science fiction love story, The Shape of Water. Written and directed by the author himself, Guillermo del Toro, starring Sally Hawkins, Octavia Spencer, Richard Jenkins and Michael Shannon. With this somewhat ambiguous backdrop of the 60s, let's say, we fall into a dark fairy tale story of a secluded introvert female janitor who works at this really random research facility with a lot of men in lab coats or what the facility does is a mystery at best. And inside this facility, we find an abnormal amphibious creature that they've held captive and our lovely female protagonist, played by Sally Hawkins, falls in love with now the creature is held captive by this research facility for god knows what reason fear or just want to research what this thing is and this woman sally hawkins this low-class worker with full access you know and from this sort of you know this two dynamics on opposite opposite ends of the spectrum emerges this unique love story that is just beautifully laid out it screams fantasy with this extremely soothing music that also shoots out the genre of a classic post-Casablanca love story, but with a twist. I mean, the bizarre set designs, the indistinct settings, and the mysterious origins of this creature adds to the mystique and beauty of this narrative, and that really sells the approval of a love story between a creature and a woman. I mean, a clear reason why I chose Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water to have a real in-depth look at is, believe it or not, it is technically the only science fiction film to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Now that is just unbelievable. 92 years of Oscar winning films and only one of them is classified predominantly as a science fiction movie. Now, I have ranted about this in my earlier podcast and said that the Academy usually favours certain genres like biopics, dramas, wars, those kind of genres that come out on top for Best Picture. And I've even had a rant about genres like horror and science fiction being completely overlooked. So when a film from an unorthodox genre triumphs at the most prestigious film award ceremony in the world, you have to wonder why it done so well and have a little look into it. And that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Now, 92 Best Picture winners, only one of them is a science fiction movie, and that is The Shape of Water. Now, back in 2003, back when Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, or whatever you want to call it, won Best Picture, um, you know, the whole fantasy crew, gamers, nerds, and that, that sort of stereotypical audience got their justice, a genre, an epic blockbuster film winning Best Picture. And some could say it was science fiction, but I think we can agree it falls more into a fantasy elements but science fiction had to wait until 2017 to get their taste of what the nerds and gamers and fantasy nuts got back in 2003 when lord of the rings won i mean now science fiction it's a very established direct um genre has been for decades but it's really getting its recognition right now i mean uh, at the academies but usually it's, it does get its recognition at the academies that's really unfair for me to say but it's usually in a technical category and they dominate those category i mean best visual effects best production design those awards which is why sci-fi films um you know usually triumph at but they're usually snubbed at the top awards because they don't get they just get the recognition elsewhere and that could be part of the reason but now science fiction now and again when something special is delivered does triumph and about five out of six have been nominated and these films are the talking point of why these films are doing so well what are these science fiction films doing i mean the most successful movie ever made in the world is a science fiction movie and that's avatar back in 2009 i mean 
that's the film that's made the most money ever. So science fiction must be up there. But it lost marginally to the bleaker Hurt Locker that year. Star Wars in 1977, revolutionary at the time, completely deserved to be nominated for Best Film. Did it deserve to win an Oscar for it? I don't think so. Yes, it deserved all the technical categories. I agree. But that's all about, you know, that's all I think it should deserve. And, you know, I completely agree. Avatar, I disagree with, though. Then you had District 9, which was the debut powerhouse movie of South African director Neil Blomkamp with his twist on the invasion genre. And speaking of invasion movies, a couple of years later, Denis Villeneuve's rival was dominating the Oscars and got nominated for Best Film. That, in all honesty, was one of my favorite films that year. And in fact, you know, in my top 10 films, Arrival was just one of the, you know, fantastic film. I mean, Denis would go back to make Blade Runner, uh, which was, I mean, spectacular, so magnificent. I mean, Blade Runner 2049 was a worthy sequel, but it didn't quite do that well at the box office, mainly because it was too long and it wasn't advertised well, kind of like how Unbreakable was a fantastic film. But it, it was just down to the distribution and advertisement, which I think is, you know... One of the reasons why a lot of films don't do so well these days, and that was definitely one of them. He's, he's sort of now put in his experience to do one of the most classic science fiction stories ever, which is Frank Herbert's Dune, and that is screaming Oscar nominations to me, which is actually coming out later this year. So we have others, you know, other films that have uh, been nominated as classified as science fiction. Spielberg's E.T., Spike Jones's Her, Gravity was one of the most successful sci-fi films to grace the Oscars, Inception in 2010, The Martian in 2016, but none of them won. Time and time again, you have all these, you know, science fiction more recently, you know, crop up, get nominated, but they don't win. I mean, you get the usual visual effects awards and production design awards, but never best film. And those films go to, like I said before, the drama or the biopics or war stories. But this is why we're here to discuss it. How did The Shape of Water succeed when all of the others failed? Was it the competition it was up against or did Shape of Water have something more or maybe something less? Remove the big special effects and focus on the depth of the core story, maybe. In this case, love. And usually, love does conquer all. So The Shape of Water actually ended up being the top-grossing Best Picture winner in the five years um, that the Academy had going for up until that point, grossing over $194 million worldwide, with only a modest budget of just shy of $20 million, so it was a huge success. I mean, the film was nominated for a staggering 13 Oscars. I mean, it won four of them, but before it won was the Best Picture, Best Director, Best Achievement in Music, and Best Production Design. I mean, the film is understandably Del Toro's favourite film of his own, winning his only two Oscars for this film. And I say only, you mean winning an Oscar is a massive thing anyway. He made commercial fame, as most people know him from, with his classic films like Pan's Labyrinth from the almost cult classic films Hellboy and Pacific Rim. Uh, he's an interesting kind of guy. I mean, very he's Mexican. He's known to have a photographic memory. Uh, very, very loud person, apparently, if those who've met him or celebrities who say they've met him. And interestingly enough, he's the fourth Mexican director to have won the Best Director. And even more remarkably, when he won, the previous four out of five winners for Best Directors were also Mexican, which is just, you know, coincidental. Alfonso Cuaron for Gravity and Alejandro González Iñárritu won twice, once for Birdman and the other for The Revenant. And then, of course, Del Toro won for The Shape of Water. So they really represented Mexico there. Um yeah, I mean, some great films coming out of Mexico, and it was a good half decade for Mexico in the directing category. I mean, he's also one of 10 directors in history to have won the Golden Globe, the Directors Guild, the BAFTA, the Oscar for the same film. 
And of course, the film being the one we're talking about right now, The Shape of Water. Now, the film, why did it do so well? Why did it win? I, there's so many reasons. And I, I honestly think a lot of people um, don't give it its due credit. I've talked to a lot of my friends and they say, shouldn't have won. I don't really like it. Why is it so good? I think it's a fantastic movie. It's probably one of the best films to have won. Um best picture and there's so many reasons why i mean with the casting of this movie most of the characters were pretty much written for for specific actors i mean most of them and most of them are in the final movie i mean sally hawkins was his first and only choice kind of like how christoph waltz's was tarantino's only choice for hans lander to do the movie and del toro said i wrote this movie for sally and he also wrote the part for michael shannon too so with Sally Hawkins' character called Elise, he said, I wanted the character to be beautiful in a home way, not in a way that is like perfume commercial kind of way, like a model material, but that you could believe that this character, this woman could be sitting next to you on the bus, but at the same time, she would have a a beauty, uh, you know, just, just something about her, a spark, almost magical presence about her. And that's what I love about Sally Hawkins. I mean, she reminds me a lot of Charlotte Gainsborough, another beautiful actress that is not obviously attractive, but there is just something the camera loves about them and it's hard not to watch. So Del Toro is very keen into his character background, kind of like how Tarantino is. He has entire, you know, backstories in his head and floods them out on paper. Now, Del Toro wrote really lengthy backstories for each of the major characters in this movie. Unlike Tarantino, though, he offered them to the uh, actors and told them, it's your choice entirely if you want to read them or not, but they are here at your disposal. Read it, it's up to you, or bin it, I don't care. Now, we're talking about 40 pages of background on these fictional characters. Now, obviously, you kind of want to read it, but, you know, if you've given a choice not to read it, then I guess that's, you know, for you. So apparently the actors all responded quite differently. Richard Jenkins ignored the backstory and he said in the interview when asked, isn't that disrespectful? And he said, nope, the only thing that matters is what happens on screen, which I thought was quite, you know, middle-aged thinking, you know, kind of like really rock hard, cold thinking. But, you know, that's, that's actors for you. While my, Michael Stuhlberg, one of my favorite actors, by the way, I absolutely love him. If you've seen Steve Jobs, he's so good in it. Um, and he's in Arrival as well, actually. Um, yeah, he read the 40 pages. He read it religiously and claimed it really helped his performance. So, you know, it's each their own, I guess. I was also reading that Richard Jenkins' character was intended for Sir Ian McKellen, but he couldn't do it. So Richard Jenkins was cast by email from Del Toro simply saying, I hope you love this script as much as you do, or as I do, I'm sorry. And obviously he did. Now, I think, like I said earlier, the two roles that were written for specific actors that did the movie were Sally Hawkins and Michael Shannon. And you can see why. I mean, they both play it beautifully. Uh, one thing I was reading about Michael Shannon was the, when the film was announced um, and won for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, Michael Shannon was in a Chicago bar and was watching it on a TV at the bar. I mean, some random dude posted a picture on Twitter of Michael just sitting at the bar alone watching the broadcast which i thought was pretty cool i mean he's such a big part of the movie the movie wouldn't have worked without him there's just so many moving parts in films and i don't believe it's always how can i put it, it doesn't always get its due recognition i mean yeah the film won best film but the reason are because everything came together and michael shannon's a massive part of that is a really pivotal role and i honestly think they need to have like a best villain category or something because uh considering that, that you know they are the most complex characters to play i mean yeah i mean i think so anyway i mean i think richard jenkins was actually nominated for best actor for this film so that's probably why you know michael shannon didn't get the nomination for that but you you, you have had films in the past be nominated for you know two or three actors from the same film i think godfather and the second one uh did that uh famously you know with like uh james khan and um al pacino and uh robert duvall i think they're all nominated but yeah, 
One thing I do love about this film, and I think why the film was well received with critics and the Academy and just people everywhere, and it's the reason why Octavia Spencer loved the screenplay, is that, you know, the main couple in this movie are mute. They can't talk to each other, not to mention diverse by nature, an ambiguous creature and a woman. And most of the dialogue is said by a black woman and a gay man. And it's also set in the 1960s, the assumed period this was set in, which would have experienced oppression. So... I think the diversity shown from this film certainly helped its critical acclaim. Now, the entire idea of this sort of backstory has been sort of done before, but not as romantic, as blunt as this film. I mean, the classic story of King Kong and Anne or Beauty and the Beast, but this one is a bit more, a bit more raw. And I think Del Toro is watching, what was it called? Uh, what reruns of like that, what's that classic 1950s movie called, um, the creature from the black lagoon and the idea sort of sprung from there. And he said in an interview, wouldn't it be cool if the creature and Julie Adams, who plays Kay in that film ends up together. Um, and uh, obviously they didn't end up together and he was a bit disappointed with that. Um, but if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen the creature from the black lagoon, I've only seen bits of it. If you can watch on the horror channel, you will notice that the exterior of the creature is sort of based on the film of The Shape of Water. So it looks very similar to that. And that's where he got his inspiration from. So they even reference it in the movie when Michael Shannon says they picked it up from the Amazon River in South America, which is where the movie is set in 1950s, uh, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So for The Creature, they had an actor called Doug Jones play him, kind of like how Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme played Predator. Well, before he got fired, that is... I think it was like Kevin Peter Hall or someone played him after that. But yeah, Doug based the physicality of the creature on that of a matador, very much leading with the hips is what he said. And because of his research, uh, they referenced it by showing a statue of a matador, which is in an office of one of the characters in the movie. See if you can spot it. It's quite interesting. So yeah, apparently it took a total of nine months to sort of arrive at the look of the creature. And Del Toro even went on record and said it was the most difficult thing in the movie to get right. In fact, the most difficult thing in his career to get right, So which is... Quite a thing to say since he's done films like Pacific Rim. So yeah, he was working on it for a while. I think he was working on it for at least six years before the movie even came out. And he paid a lot for the movie himself. Hence why the budget was so low for a science fiction movie. I mean, there were talks about this film being in black and white as well. But that soon got turned around by the producers and eventually Del Toro. I mean... The Shape of Water is just jam-packed with, you know, full of homages and references to old Hollywood. I mean, the film best describes is basically a fairy tale for adults. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, when he got the inspiration from the creature from the Black Lagoon, he thought it was going to end well for the monsters. I mean, that's when he watched it as a kid. He thought, oh, hopefully the monsters survive. But, you know, it doesn't. And um, as a kid, when he was watching monster movies, he thought the exact same for, you know, I hope the monsters survive this. Or I hope it goes well for them. You know, when you watch Frankenstein or King Kong, but you know, much to his disappointment, you know, as we know, none of those films end well for the monsters. And I mean, they rarely do. So this pays a sort of twist to the monster genre and turns it on its head. Now, you know, what if beauty fell for the beast, you know, so it has obvious reference into beauty and the beast, where in this movie, the girl is someone you can relate to instead of a princess. And if we're going on the sort of beauty and the beast sort of scenario, you can say that Gaston, if we are doing referencing is in fact, Michael Shannon's character portrayed in this movie is this true American guy with kids, perfect house, jawline, rich in charge. But we find out very slowly he, he's the true monster. He's the true beast in this movie, whom the narration alludes to at the start as the one who ruins everything. I mean, the beast doesn't need to transform in order to be of the human, like in the Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, etc., etc. It's the other way around. I mean, 
Elisa in this movie ends up underwater and joins the monster, kind of like a homage to Tom Hanks joining Daryl Hannah's mermaid in Splash or the princess becoming the ogre in Shrek. I mean, the ending of the movie is sort of very interesting parallels to how human thinks or believe that we have this monster personality or monster in us, which is a famous metaphor, which is taken quite literally in this film. Elisa understands that, you know, many of the humans in this movie are monstrous and not as caring as people might think. I mean, the monsters, however, is comfortable and okay with who he is, like is being okay being deaf or gay or being black is completely acceptable. I mean, her being deaf adds this vulnerability to her that takes no effort at all to immediately fall in love with her and by guided misjudgment feel sorry for her. And yet she is completely capable of standing alone without our pity as the audience. But, you know, she's the character we're following. Other films have tried to explore this whole human and monster relationship have occurred, you know, many times in Hollywood's before films like, you know, and in different styles as well, like uh, Black Stallion, E.T., uh, King Kong, even John Carpenter's Starman, where the alien and human do embrace in a romantic sort of relationship like in Shape of Water. But Del Toro does not hide away in a human flesh like they do in Starman or Species. He embraces the monster fully. And that is the point of this movie, that you should be okay with what or who you are. I mean, the remarkable themes of this movie and very easily identifiable considering the time period of this film is set and the repulsion the men have with gay person or the underestimation of the ability of the black uh, community or a deaf woman at the facility is just, it's so obvious to see what the world is actually like and what some people actually think in their heads um or to have someone they don't quite understand locked away in a tank because they fear it i mean like they say in cool running i mean we're different people are always afraid of what's different the film is a shout out to the the weirds the people who are different who are not normal seen by outsiders or to be outside the box to the rest i mean it's okay or it's trying to reach out to say you know i'm gonna be gay i'm gonna be a deaf woman i'm gonna be black i'm gonna be a monster it doesn't matter i am gonna be who i am i mean the movie is a metaphor to accept who you are and to understand what the movie or movie does to you and how the world can be against you for any numbers of reasons but you should never cow away from who you truly are the thought-provoking thing about the origin of this movie is kind of irrelevant, but not so much for the case for Elisa. Now, I know, and just before we go on referencing, notes her name, which is another homage to another classic. Elisa is a heroine for one of the most loved musical ever, My Fair Lady, which is a story of a cockney woman who's made into a lady kind of like, you know, kind of like how they do in Pretty Woman. They dress her up and make her speak properly. And that's all been orchestrated by a, ma a, name, a man named uh, Henry. And in this film, we sort of see a darker version of Henry played by Michael Shannon's character. Once again, he's kind of this somewhat, he's sort of turned on by Elisa not being able to speak confirmed from the sex scene where he covers his wife's mouth. I mean, he loves total domination and the idea of creating someone's identity traits of a classic villain in fairy tales. Sort of returning back to the origins of Elisa in terms of her character in this movie, we're seeing quite early on that she has these injuries in on her neck that we assume has made her mute, these scars on her neck. And it's almost forcing us to believe that maybe Elisa is actually a creature herself since we find out that these scars then turn into gills later on in the movie. I mean, the classic thing to take away here symbolically here is that she's been a fish or aquatic being and has been out of the water her entire life without even knowing it. Maybe she can speak, but doesn't know how to do it with the air. Maybe water is her true calling. And that's where this attraction comes from, from this ambiguous creature or amphibious creature as well. 
I mean, the film suggests in a very fairy tale way, not only does the two end up together and fall in love, but Lisa finally discovers who she may very well be and that she has found the place that she belongs into, which goes beautifully with the title of the movie, The Shape of Water, finding your shape in life and seeing where you flow. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's too many reasons why this film is so good. It's just fantastic. And, um, it is about finding yourself and, um, yeah, it's a love story at the core, but, um, uh, the backdrop of it is a beautiful science fiction movie with beautiful music, beautiful set design and wonderful acting. And it's just hard not to love. Anyway, that's all I have time for with The Shape of Water. So many things that blow out in this film to the, you know, the colour green, to the silence not being silence or to finding where you belong. It's no wonder this grown-up fairy tale movie won audiences on a global scale. But anyway, please subscribe to me on Spotify, iTunes and Google and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, Film Exploration AH or lowercase or one word. And once again, thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hari. 